You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's September 20th. Technology, globalization, and demographic shifts have profoundly changed the American workplace over the last 40 years. And yet, nearly two decades into the 21st century, the U.S. approach to workforce development and employment still runs on a 20th century model. You go to kindergarten, grade school, and high school, sometimes college, and then you get a job. This system may be working for some people, but it leaves many others behind. Some workers may have skills they aren't able to put to good use, or they can't access the training they need to learn new skills for a new job. So, what can be done to create a system that will thrive in the 21st century and beyond? A new RAND report envisions a future workforce development and employment system that focuses on equity and efficiency. To address the problems with the status quo and adapt for the future, the authors recommend pursuing two main goals. First, provide equitable access to opportunities for learning, training, and retraining throughout the course of workers' lives. This involves teaching K-12 students the basic skills they need for a lifetime of work. Later on in life, displaced and transitioning workers will need multiple on-ramps that help them make smart investments in their futures. The second goal is to enable timely and appropriate matching and rematching of skilled workers with the jobs they're well-suited for. This would require improving connections between employers and education and training providers, helping employers become more in tune with future workplace needs and worker skills, and adjusting to the growing gig economy. Achieving these goals could be essential to creating a system that accounts for the needs of workers and employers, rapid and disruptive changes in technology, and the ever-evolving nature of work. A recent decision by a jury in Florida has once again brought national attention to the state's stand-your-ground law, which serves as the model for similar laws in 32 other states. Stand-your-ground laws lower the bar for using deadly force in a confrontation. Prior to these laws, deadly force could be justified only if a person reasonably believed themselves to be at imminent risk of injury or death, without any safe way of retreating. But stand-your-ground means that individuals don't have a duty to retreat. RAND experts reviewed evidence about these laws as part of our Gun Policy in America initiative. They found that there was moderate evidence, the second strongest level in our analysis, that stand-your-ground laws are associated with an increase in homicides. Since we launched the initiative, at least four more rigorous studies have reinforced this finding. None of these studies found that stand-your-ground laws prevented violent crime, and no rigorous study has yet determined whether these laws promote legitimate acts of self-defense. So the evidence helps shed at least some light on the effects of stand-your-ground laws. However, our Gun Policy in America initiative found that this is the exception and not the rule. For most gun policies, there's too little scientific evidence to draw any conclusions about their likely effects. And although 40,000 Americans die from gunshot injuries each year, the federal government spends a fraction as much on gun violence prevention research as it does on other causes of death that kill similar numbers of people. 
Rand experts point out that debates about gun laws are, in principle, debates about facts. Facts we could know with more rigorous research. But without scientific evidence, bad laws may be passed or retained under the mistaken belief that they make people safer. To learn more, visit rand.org slash gun policy. What would happen if six core countries in the Levant, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey, signed a comprehensive free trade agreement? According to a new RAND report, the average GDP of these nations would increase by 3 to 7 percent, and regional unemployment rates would be reduced by 8 to 18 percent. These outcomes are based on a trade deal that eliminates tariffs, lowers investments and non-tariff barriers, and waives visa requirements. It's important to note that achieving economic integration would not be easy. It would require some level of stabilization in Syria, as well as coordination among countries that are often at odds with one another. You can find the report on RAND.org. And if you want to create your own trade scenario in the region and see the effects, we also launched an interactive calculator that does just that. Check it out at rand.org slash Levant Calculator. Last week, the Trump administration announced its plan to remove all non-tobacco flavors of e-cigarettes, including mint and menthol, from the market. On Tuesday, New York became the first state to enact a flavored e-cigarette ban. And just yesterday, lawmakers in the House and in the Senate introduced bills to achieve similar ends. These moves come amid growing concern about vaping among teens. The Department of Health and Human Services reported earlier this month that more than 25% of high school students use e-cigarettes. That number continues to climb. Findings from a recent RAND study highlight the importance of taking steps to prevent youth from vaping in the first place. Our findings suggest that teens don't substitute vaping products for cigarettes. Rather, adolescents who use vaping products are more likely to smoke cigarettes. In fact, they're likely to increase their use of both products over time. A new RAND report asks, what role do cyber operations play in interstate and international relations? To find out, the authors took a close look at how Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea use cyber operations, and more specifically, whether they're using cyber to coerce others. Russia and North Korea appear more likely to have used cyber operations as a coercive tool than China and Iran. Also, states often do not make distinct threats with unambiguous demands. Rather, they use cyber operations to try to coerce their neighbors while denying responsibility, often hiding behind proxies and without issuing clear demands. Notably, it's espionage, not coercion, that remains the predominant purpose of most cyber operations globally. Nonetheless, the U.S. and its partners should develop a richer understanding of cyber coercion and how to respond. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. See you next week.